the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Happy May 20th, 2021. We spoke of this before, but it's all right because repetition, as you know, is the essence of pedagogy. Over the past few days, a few callers have wanted me to discuss how we know when we Americans can legitimately rise up under the natural right of revolution, given usurpations of rights, irrigations of power, corruption, etc. A large part of this comes from, of course, a doubting of the ability to let free elections solve our political disagreements. Another way to ask this, how in a Republican form of government do we handle a disappointment or loss we firmly believe the result of unfairness, irregularity, or fraud? The question is, of course, not new, though it is anew with us today. It goes back to our very founding, in fact. And Abraham Lincoln was obsessed with this issue from his earliest speech, his Lyceum speech. And then, of course, again, when he was and throughout his presidency, asking, is there in all republics this inherent and fatal weakness? Must a government of necessity be too strong for the liberties of its own people or too weak to maintain its own existence? It's an uncomfortable discussion because it asks for an extreme solution that is unprecedented for nearly 250 years here. But political philosophy deals with extremes in order, at best, to soothe them into responsible politics and polities. I think we should always start the discussion with its origins in the Declaration of Independence. This is where we find the phrase, quote, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, close quote. But the next point part is just as important. And in legal analysis and reasoning, the second, the third, the following sentences are always deemed more important than the earlier ones. General rule of legal interpretation. Quote, prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them to under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for the future security, close quote. I've spoken a good deal about what Jefferson says regarding prudence. I think it's equally important to reflect on the words absolute despotism. The condition is absolute 
despotism as a result of a long train of abuses and usurpations. But Thomas Jefferson, of course, is also invoked on this subject when he wrote from France in 1787 about the Chaise Rebellion, quote, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure, close quote. Forgotten often is the fact that this line of Jefferson's horrified George Washington, prompting him to try to create a government strong enough in Philadelphia at the convention that year to keep this sentiment from running riot. Riot. Good word, that. James Madison was on to this, too, as he put it in Federalist 51, a line conservatives don't much love, but it is there, quote, in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed and in the next place oblige it to control itself. In A New Birth of Freedom, Professor Harry Jaffa writes this about Jefferson's letter. Jefferson's reaction to Shays' rebellion contrasts remarkably with the reactions of Washington, Madison, Hamilton, and other leading founders. For them, that rebellion proved a catalyst for the convention that framed the Constitution of 1787, a document that had no more urgent purpose than to provide security for property against popular passions. Property was being endangered in the states by the people seeking relief from debt, either through the legislature or by mob action. But despite his reaction to Shays' rebellion, no one was more committed than Jefferson to the security of property under the rule of law, in popular no less than in other kinds of government. Jefferson always believed that the people are the origin of all the just powers of government, that it is by the majority alone that the people can act. But in keeping with his view that an elective despotism was not the government Americans fought for, Jefferson believed with the other founders in the danger of majority tyranny. The rights of minorities, meaning the rights of individuals, were no less inviolable by the kings than by people. And he thought that popular governments were subject to corruption and that resistance to corruption might be manifested in resistance even to popular governments. The right of revolution, which underlay all the people's rights, might then be manifested either in violent resistance to corrupt or tyrannical governments or in the institution and maintenance of popular governments deriving their just powers from the consent of the govern. In the nineteen seven excuse me, in the seventeen nineties, in the seventeen nineties, Jefferson was frequently of two minds as to whether the government instituted as a result of the ratification of the Constitution deserved loyalty as, as, as an embodiment of the people's rights, or whether it deserved resistance for having usurped powers never given to it by the people. The transformation of the right of revolution to the right of free election really begins with Thomas Jefferson's own party victory in 1800. We are reminded that Lincoln's first great speech, the Lyceum speech, 1838, had as its theme the particular importance in a popular government of reverence for the laws and obedience to them. Lincoln stressed the necessity of obeying even bad laws while working for the repeal or reform because disobedience to bad laws engenders a habit of lawlessness 
that easily turns into mob rule. And when law cannot protect persons and property, men will turn away from the rule of law to despotism for their security. Indeed, Lincoln's understanding in this speech of the dangers of lawlessness for popular government or of the inexorable connection between anarchy and tyranny was substantially the same as the one that animated those who called for the Convention of 1787. Now, that all said, <laughs> I know there are a lot of questions raised, but let's start with a few facts of history, starting with that Thomas Jefferson didn't even apply his own 1787 standard to himself when he was president. As the Pulitzer Prize-winning constitutional historian Leonard Levy writes in an entire book about Jefferson's violations of civil liberties, called Jefferson and Civil Liberties, The Darker Side, Jefferson at one time or another supported loyalty oaths, countenanced internment camps for political suspects, drafted a bill of attainder, urged prosecutions for seditious libel, trampled on the Fourth Amendment, condoned military despotism, used the army to enforce laws in time of peace, censored reading, chose professors for their political opinions, and endorsed the doctrine that the means, however odious, were justified by the ends. Easy to write, somewhat irresponsibly, from France, I guess. A little different where you're in your own country and the president. For example, we have something in America called the Insurrection Act. Many of us wanted President Trump to use it to put down the BLM and Antifa riots last year. It was the cause of Tom Cotton's op-ed in the New York Times that led to the New York Times editorial page immolating itself. Guess who signed the Insurrection Act into law? Thomas Jefferson. He did so after writing to his Secretary of State, James Madison, asking if he could use military troops against a planned insurrection. Madison said he could not, and thus came about the Insurrection Act, allowing for that. Think about what a revolution in the name of Jefferson's principles would mean when it would be put down by an invocation of law and practice Thomas Jefferson created. Think about that. Now, if I may go back to Professor Jaffa for a moment, if an individual's discontent with a law is shared with a majority or a large minority of his fellow citizens, they may join together to resist it or to have the law repealed or declared unconstitutional in the courts. And the best example in our own time of how these processes are related to each other is provided by the civil rights movement that culminated in the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 1965 and 1968. Here, civil disobedience, court action, political action, and finally legislative action all conspired to produce an outcome that in all likelihood would not have come to pass without all of them. These same elements in differing proportions have been present in all the great political movements and controversies in American history, including anti-slavery, temperance, women's suffrage, and abortion. Finally, there was a question of the terms of the revolution and what it would look like. It is often pointed out that few Americans actually fought in the American Revolution, true enough, but they fought it against a foreign power. We have experiences with civil war as well, though, here, too, as Americans, don't we? American against American? Are we ready for that in a country that hinges on something close to a 5149 preference for views not our own? One of the problems with violence against America 
as it will always be violence against fellow Americans. And it will not be successful. It will be bloody and it will fail. It is also in consonant with everyone we want to revivify and study from Washington to Lincoln. As the old man, Lincoln, put it, there is no grievance that is a fit object of redress by mob law. Oh, sure. Antifa thinks there is. BLM thinks there is. Not us. We, as Lincoln put it, build pillars hewn from the solid quarry of sober reason. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Oh, there are a few things in this job that make you just smile when the show starts. And seeing one of your favorite people on the call board is one of those things. What did uh, Charlie Brown and Linus say? Happiness is a warm puppy. Happiness for a radio host is seeing a name like Tina in Star Valley on the screen. Hi, Tina. Hello, Seth. What a transcendently Thoughtful, wonderful monologue. Oh, why, thank you. (laughs) That means a lot coming from you, because I know you think of, you know, the Bill of Rights culture and all that. I do, and uh, and as do you. And one of the the things that I've been really looking at as I uh, go into my dotage, um, I had my 74th birthday in April. Stop. And I'm so excited to be, yeah. So excited to be one of the uh, you know the the elder states women. I'm wondering um, how voice sounds when you judge age. <laughs> you know, we have never met, right? I don't think we've ever met. And I don't believe so. Yeah, not yet. No, we'd remember it, right? And I would not I have would, guessed. I would, I, based on your voice, I would have guessed. You know, fifty maybe. Yeah, I don't know how I don't know how old I sound like. Probably twelve. I don't know. No, I was going to say twelve. Yeah, no, no. You give and you take, you women, don't you? You give and you take. We do. Yes, thank you. We do. Uh, One of the things that's really becoming, you know, clearer to me as I get older, is the 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 dealing with uh, contradictions. You know, Mm. you have Jefferson, whom we, Mm. you know, I, I definitely. Uh, adulate and think highly of him, and yet your list of the things that he did to contradict his own philosophy is is very sobering and yet very human. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we are all like that. But, you know, lately I've been thinking of H.L. Mencken, mm. uh, my, my favorite atheist, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> who, you know, who said there comes a time to hoist the black flag and rub one's hands together and start slitting throats. Mm. And, um, you know, and, and I, I don't like this idea, but I feel like we're being pushed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, having lived in, in Jamaica, as you know, uh, during martial law, when it was, it was, I mean, it was awful. You know, there was nothing in the grocery stores and there were mobs in the streets and gun confiscation uh, big time. Uh, you know, I see us moving towards something like that unless some miracle happens. Where did the start Uh, of the breakdown with Jamaica begin? I have two theses, but you go ahead. Michael Manley, who was the 
son of Norman Manley, the great statesman of Jamaica. Michael Manley was a commie wannabe. Uh And he went over to Cuba and schmoozed and bonded with Fidel Mm -hmm. and then came back and seriously instigated, um, you know, uh, bad feelings against particularly white Americans, but foreigners, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, that that we were dreadful people and we didn't deserve to be there and and it, it really grew from there. He he was a bad guy. And he also hired uh gangs to be his bodyguards. And this is in roughly the what, the mid seventies? It it was in the early seventies. Okay. We left in seventy seven. Okay. Um, so it was in the, yeah, like seventy one, seventy two. Okay, so like you that. have a toxic yeah governing philosophy in Marxism. Mm -hmm. And then you combine it, Tina, with the two things I I was going to run by you as well, which I thought um, that you having been there, you would know a million times better. One would have been um, lawlessness or respect for the rule of law, and one would have been corruption. Yep. Both, yeah, both of the above. And it seems to me you had a firsthand experience in what Lincoln was decrying in the 18, um, 1830s and 1840s about mob rule and lawlessness. Mm-hmm. That's what we saw. You have it now. You can go to Jamaica. You yeah. can go to Haiti. Yeah, yeah. And go to the way that it is now with those those people in charge in Washington. Right, right. They're doing, you know, I mean, it's sort of like... You know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and Biden. I By the mean, way, I've never that. known what that means. <laughs> well, I think what it means is. I've heard it. Yeah, it's what it's often attributed to my friend J.D. Hayworth. Um, right. Uh, although right. I think it's an older phrase than 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 his uh, uh, use of it. But good for him for publicizing it. But I don't know what it means. Well, think about history repeating itself so exactly that people can go, oh, look, it's repeating itself. We've got to avoid that. I see. But it, it's not like that. It's, it sneaks in slyly on little, you know, little patty feet to look different. Oh, it's, it's like people say about socialism. Oh, well, this time it's going to be different. just hasn't been tried properly. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, you know, the, there's human nature. Human nature is human nature. Um, and we, I believe we are basically corruptible, and uh, it's very difficult to hold ourselves back from that. We, we never, that we never is, get the grace of that argument, by the way. Have you noticed when it comes to conservative <laughs> public policy, particularly economic policy, when we talk about trying to uh, grow our economy with uh, tax cuts and low spending, right. and we never get the low spending when we sometimes get the tax cuts, and yet we're told right. it never works and we always increase the t- Well, <laughs> they never say, well, maybe you guys just haven't had enough chances trying it. They never say that to us <laughs> when it comes to right. capitalism. They only say it when it comes to communism. We should try to get – got a break, but you can stay, can't you? You, you have a lot more in your tank. I- I would love to. Thank I would you. love to have you stay. Please stay, stay, stay. Who sang the song "Stay"? Oh, what was her name? We actually have her song in bumper music. The girl with the glasses and the cats, Lisa Loeb. See, we can work it all out. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the uh, Seth Leibson Show. You don't, you don't want to put an uh there, <laughs> like you're trying to remember your name. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. By the way, did I miss – can you check on this, Bill? I'm sorry. Did I miss the passing of radio broadcaster Gordon Liddy? I might have. Am I, and if it's and if I'm wrong about that, I apologize. Tina, thank you for your patience in holding. Uh, oh, thank you. And, and speaking of Gordon Liddy, yeah. my favorite line of his when he, he would answer, you know, the, a caller, it is I, Gordon Liddy. And I used to use that in my English class. <laughs> that that is the correct pronoun. No um, kidding. And I, I, I loved him. I just loved him. He, I, he did a four-hour show, which is a hard thing to do, especially, yeah. you know, he wasn't young. He, yes, Bill, you informed me he passed at the end of March. Yeah. Yes. Went by without a lot of comment. I guess he was overshadowed by another radio host's passing around the same time. But Gordon Liddy, um, who gave a lot of classes on Second Amendment and use of the gun. Did you know that, Tina? I did, and I also know that because he was a felon, he was not allowed to own guns, but he always used to say that Mrs. Liddy owned a bunch of them. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. What, a, what an interesting now, character but... in our history, you know? Just an, an interesting uh, – is there anyone like that in our history we can think of? Name me some other non-director of the FBI who was famous for being in the FBI. <laughs> I, I'm drawing a blank. Or it's really yeah, hard. He was, he was he was one of a kind. He was he was, he was one was of a kind. Very very educated, and very uh, you know very literate, and uh, and really I read his book. It was wonderful. So guess who uh, guess who uh, one of his first drug busts was? Who? Maynard Ferguson. No way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh my he stormed that uh, that place in Millbrook that was being run by uh, 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 Timothy Leary, where they were all living. Oh goodness! Yeah. Anyway, yes. little yeah. piece of history. Tune Sorry. In, tune in. Yeah. Tune in. Whatever. Dropout. Yeah, yeah. Exactly that stuff. You know, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I am. I am fearful. I am. I, I'm fearful because it feels like I'm. You know, living like Yogi Berra said, deja deja well deja vu all over again. And, See, we rely on um, we rely on the people who lived through the '50s, '60s, and '70s um, and saw the depredations of socialism. We rely on you to to remind us uh, of what it was, uh, just as we remind so many of our Eastern European friends, many of them callers and listeners to this show, to remind us right. of what it is they lived through, what they had to escape, to talk about the kinds of things Seb Gorka talks about with regard to his parents. We 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 have that conceit going on. We seem to have forgotten it, um, though it was in our lifetimes. Uh, the other well, we, con- do, we do, yeah. but but one of the things that I the get, other conceit we know, have I is we downgrade it. We things. downgrade the evil. Oh, I know. Yeah, we define the deviancy of it young- down. Yeah, I, do, I guess it's from young people. Well, okay, boomer. I'm like, oh, seriously. Well, it's 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 I mean, it's an interesting thing. Think about how um, how much less toxic communism seems in this country in the lips of a journalist or an activist, as opposed mm-hmm. to the term uh, uh, Nazi. Um, the, there's this weird cultural cleansing of communism from its stain of blood. 
people will happily call each other comrade, for example. They would not call each other right. the Nazi equivalent here in this country with any degree of respectability at all. There's a degree of respectability right. with communism that it has not earned but was the effort of a great, great, great whitewash of history. Well, and, and David Horowitz's amazing uh, collection of books, The Black Book of Communism, I mean, anybody who reads that. Of course, I knew a young man, uh, quite disturbed up here, but from uh, the high school, and he had a tattoo of a hammer and sickle on his arm. He read The Black Book of Communism and was also horrified when he was doing yard work for a gentleman in one of the tonier communities up here and the gentleman uh, saw this and and just lost it and what i figure is uh yeah the gentleman was probably had probably been a victim of of communism but he 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 threw this guy off his property yeah Uh, and good for him yeah (laughs) yeah maybe it'll send someone to go do a little reading and learning a little history maybe well he he had read he had read it but his whole thing was, and this is the, the thing about the left, they have such cognitive dissonance and they are committed to being right no matter what. They will double down even when they're wrong. Yeah, look at them try and support yeah. LGBTQ rights and, and Gaza at the same time, Hamas at the same time. <laughs> I know. Tina, thank you so much. God love you, dear. Thank you. I love you. God bless you and God bless all your li- listeners. Thank you. You're wonderful. Six zero two five zero eight. Zero nine six zero. We'll be right back. It's kind of the story here, right? We get done at six and then we start our day. Six at night, pretty much. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. If um, you um, go to nine sixty thepatriot.com, you can get tickets. Still, we have a few for our great um, event on May twenty fifth, the Crisis at the Border event. We're bringing in the uh, uh, great Mike Gallagher, Seb Gorka, Andy Biggs, and myself will be at the Embassy Suites in Scottsdale with you. Uh, Tuesday night, September twenty, uh, September May twenty fifth. Why did I say September? May twenty fifth. Crisis at the border. We're going to the border the day before. Uh, four of us are, and uh, get a get a um, getting a first hand tour of it, and then we will share our thoughts with you on May twenty fifth, and uh, a lot about a lot of other stuff too. You know, you got Gorka, you got Gallagher, you got Biggs. There's a lot to cover, and we're going to love doing it face to face with you, face to face. If you would like tickets, 960thepatriot.com, or I will give two general admission tickets away right now if you're the first caller at 602-508-0960. Just give your name and info to Bill if he tells you you are the winner. You're welcome to come on the show. If you want to, that's up to you. And uh, tell us what you're looking forward to hearing or who you're looking forward to hearing from most. And um, we'll get you squared away. I should also say welcome back, Bill. Uh I'm glad you had a good day off, and I uh, I hope you um, saw a good movie or something. I'll look forward to it. Yeah, you're crazy with the phones now. All of a sudden, I'll get that feedback from you shortly. Um, issues and insights. For journalists of a certain age, the Associated Press was the gold standard for hard, objective news. Facts mattered. Opinions didn't. 
It influenced the world. Even now, its website brags that, quote, more than half the world's population sees AP journalism every day, close quote. Think about the power of that. Half the world sees AP journalism every day. If true, it's not a good thing. After recent revelations about its bias in reporting on Israel's conflict with Hamas, the AP has again shown itself to be just another left-biased media outlet. When it comes to the Israel-Palestinian conflict, AP's reporting simply cannot be trusted. There is a, this, there, there is a tragedy for journalism, and this is it when you cannot trust an entire network. Generations of reporters knew they could cull facts and quotes from AP stories and trust that they were accurate and unbiased, and that's just no longer the case. Once considered the epitome of neutrality and fairness, the American Spectator recently wrote the AP has become little more than another woke organization. Its reporting simply isn't reliable, AP's rage over the IDF's destruction of its offices in Gaza is a perfect example. The AP has worked out of the 12-story Al-Jala Tower in Gaza for 15 years, but it wasn't the sole occupant. Along with the rabidly anti-Israel news organization Al Jazeera, Hamas intelligence operatives were also tenants. They used the offices to plan terrorist attacks against Israel. Not surprisingly, after Hamas unleashed a barrage of thousands of missiles against Israeli civilian targets, the IDF struck back. After warning the tower owner an hour ahead of time that it planned the attack, the IDF obliterated the building. As it usually does with those warnings ahead of time, it puts life over mission, life of enemy over mission to self because it loses great amounts of intelligence when it tells people ahead of time, scatter. When it tells people ahead of time, scatter, you've seen enough Jason Bourne movies, you know that the first thing they scatter for are the things in the safe and in classified folders. AP came under heavy criticism for housing its bureau in the same facility as Hamas. CEO Gary Pruitt was indignant, saying the news organization, quote, had no indication Hamas was in the building or active in the building, close quote. He went on to assert that, quote, this is something we actively check to the best of our ability. We would never knowingly put our journalists at risk, close quote. And he added, quote, this is an incredibly disturbing development as we narrowly avoided a terrible loss of life, close quote. All of the above assertions and statements are false. In fact, AP knew about Hamas's presence for years. It was warned well ahead of time to leave the building and the AP offing knowingly puts journalists at risk around the world. Going into dangerous zones is, after all, part of their job. The British Daily Mail reported that Israel had shown hard evidence for the presence of Hamas in the building. We showed them the smoking gun, proving Hamas worked out of that building. He added, who he, sorry, Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi, added Biden had found the explanation satisfactory, the providing details of the evidence. Close quote. Pruitt's defense of AP was disingenuous at best. And to be blunt, the AP has had a pro-terrorist slant for years. But since those same biases are held by much of the rest of the mainstream big media, it's gone largely unnoticed and remarked upon. But former AP correspondent Matty Friedman 
writing in the Atlantic Monthly seven years ago, described AP's operations in Gaza this way. Remember, this is former AP correspondent. Quote, the AP staff in Gaza City would witness a rocket launch right beside their office, endangering reporters and other civilians nearby. And the AP wouldn't report it. Not even in AP articles about Israeli claims that Hamas was launching rockets from residential areas, which also happened. Hamas fighters would burst into the AP's Gaza Bureau and threaten the staff, and the AP wouldn't report it. This also happened. Cameramen waiting outside Shifa Hospital in Gaza City would film the arrival of civilian casualties and then, at a signal from an official, turn off their cameras when wounded and dead fighters came in, helping Hamas maintain the illusion that only civilians were dying and in the hospital. This, too, happens. During the 2014 conflict, AP ran a story on deaths in Gaza that claimed 508 of 844 dead Gazans, or more than 60%, were women or children, and thus all civilian. But that much-discussed piece turned out to be wrong. A 2015 article in the Online Observer the following year looked into the AP report and found that reporters would take death tolls from Gaza's health ministry a propaganda arm of the Hamas terrorist group that rules Gaza, with no skepticism at all. AP's devastating report made it look as if Israel just murders civilians in cold blood. David Harsani recently wrote that AP merely regurgitates Hamas's claims in an effort to portray Israel as wantonly and indiscriminately slaughtering of civilians, feeding into the narrative of anti-Semites across the world, the AP failed to properly identify sources and causes of death. It used partial and misleading quotes, and it relied on posted photos and Palestinian disinformation. In short, it misformed and misled the public knowingly. This isn't the first time, nor will it be the last. The AP is yet another major media outlet that has chosen fashionably leftist politics and woke culture, including a reflexive loathing for the state of Israel as its journalistic lodestars. Truth over the narrative is just simply no more, not at the AP. Portions of this show brought to you by my friend Solar Sandy. She's the woman who brought integrity back to solar in Arizona and figured out how to actually zero out your power bill. So important. When you go solar, you do it the right way. You should read the testimonials on her website, AskSolarSandy.com. They're amazing what she can accomplish. And if you sign up now, she'll pay your power bills for one year and your solar panel payments for one year, and you will receive a $1,000 bonus at signing. That's right. No power bills, no solar panel payments, and a $1,000 bonus at signing. To get started, go to AskSolarSandy.com and let Sandy do all the work, or go to 623, or call, I should say, 623-850-8229. That's 623-850-8229, or AskSolarSandy.com. I don't have enough time to do it just right now in this segment, so we'll do it in the next hour. Um, But um, 
they are starting, our side is starting to get the attention of the woke corporation. This is tremendously good and important news. We were asking in the wake of Coke and Delta and other places, other corporations, we were, we were asking about three, four weeks ago when these corporations decided to weigh in on state election laws like in Georgia – and propose boycotts and lectures on doing business in Georgia over election reform laws there. We were wondering if we actually had enough unification, stick to and resolution, resolve, to vote on our approval of these corporations with our wallets – if we conservatives could send a strong enough signal to these corporations that if they don't respect our point of view, we're not going to respect the product. And respecting our point of view does not mean endorsing it. It means not calling us racists for having it. That's what it meant. Did we have enough power to affect change in these corporations' attitudes about our political beliefs and theirs based on our collective power and resolve. Well, I have some good news on that for you, and I'll tell you about it in the next hour. I'm Seth Liebson, 602 508 0960. We'll be right back. <laughs> 